military heroes. We don't really have them anymore. No, I guess you're right. In sort of, we've got Chris Kyle and that guy that killed Bin Laden, and then like I guess that war criminal like Eddie Gallagher. But I don't feel like they aren't celebrities. I feel like you cherry picked those examples. <laughs> well, who else would you pick? Who, who you're, not else? Gonna like, you're not going to put General McChrystal in there? <laughs> no. The runaway general. <laughs> and I think it's a good thing that we don't idolize military heroes all as much, but I mean, it's a thing that people have been doing, I guess, back to Achilles. And it seems like a relatively recent thing to uh, not celebritize people that are you know, really, really good at war. Yeah, I was a big fan of of war stars when I was a kid, for sure. Like I, I had my favorites, you know, like Audie Morphy and uh, Sergeant York, and and people like that. Yeah, I think it just depended on on what book I was I was reading. I was very fascinated with the Huns for a minute. Still have some like Alexander the Great opinions that aren't my own, but like they feel like mine because they've had we've had them for so long. Um. Yeah, I mean they were they were cool. They I feel like it was easier to have war heroes without like the rich tapestry of human life because it's just like easier to separate what they were doing from sort of like the the end result of what they did. If that makes sense, like a war like implicit in a war hero is that they kill a lot of people. Yeah, I was thinking about this a lot when Suleimani got killed. Of just like mm-hmm. he was very much a war hero, like for uh, Iran. Not a good guy either. Yeah, I mean, from their perspective, perhaps, but like he had done a lot of shit, but he was someone that like had risen through the ranks as someone that, like, I don't know, and, and was doing things that he generally thought were good for his country. But yeah, then we just blew him up on a tarmac. In the past, it would have just been like he could have been the war hero to them without much, like, uh, like Twitter ads, like Twitter replies, you know, but like in the real world, like, I feel like, I feel like now anytime you sort of, and it's, and it's not a bad thing. It's just like, now that we actually have to consider other people's perspectives in narratives, it's really hard to have a war hero because people just get killed in war. It's like, I remember when I was a little kid and someone was like, I, I know not someone, my mom, I'd, I guess I had a full existential breakdown at a McDonald's because I learned that the chicken nugget had a mom. And I was just like, no, no, no. I was like two years old. But I feel like that's like the entire thing with war now where it's just like this was someone's kid and you actually have to consider that if you are like recounting war. Like there was an era of war, like war history where you were just like, no, that guy was awesome. He got 400 kills. Mm -hmm. Now you're like, oh my God, that's like 400 people that got sent, you know, like the clothing of their father or whatever. Like that's terrifying. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Is that a hero? Like, like I remember watching that the American Sniper movie, like Fake Baby, notwithstanding, and end of that movie, notwithstanding, and just like sort of just doing the math, just being like, man, this guy was just a merchant of death. Mm-hmm. Not that like he wasn't. Like, I'm not. You know, you're not faulting. Like he was doing what he was trained and paid, and he was fighting people doing the same thing. Like not getting into that politic, but it's just like it is a very weird thing to consider. Yeah, it's not something that uh, it feels perverse to celebrate these days which is a very different cultural position to be in than it has been for like pretty much the rest of human history. Yeah. And I feel like we're like taking less Chuck Yeager flights to just be like, that guy flies fast. He did fly pretty fast. We're going to get to him. You know where they didn't have Twitter ads was in world war one. 
when uh, flying aces were all of the rage and some of the uh, foremost celebrities that you could have. And guess what those flying aces wore? They wore flight jackets. Welcome back to Heddle's Blowout. I'm David Shuck, here with my illustrious co-host, Reed Nelson. Hey, David. How are we doing, Reed? Doing well. How are you? Doing, doing good. Doing good. We're, we're back for our second installment of Flight Jacket History. And this is the episode where it really takes off. Hey. In our last episode, we talked about the earliest experiments of humans with aviation, which mostly included people covering themselves with feathers and jumping off of tall buildings. However... That lineage eventually got us to the Wright brothers, who pioneered the first powered flight in 1903. And they sold that first plane to the U.S. Army in 1909, but that would be far from the last plane bought by a military, because soon every powerful nation in the face of the planet would be buying planes by the thousands, and also, of course, buying jackets for the people who flew them. So there'd been like heightening tensions between pretty much all countries in Europe for the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. And is, without getting too deep into the geopolitical reasons why, it was just sort of the, the borders of imperialism had started to butt into each other and you had all these like latter-day monarchs that were losing control of power. And uh, when you had that power vacuum, you know, all these empires started to get unstable and started to you know, look for reasons to fight each other to further entrench their own power when they had a tenuous grasp at best on uh, their own countries. Do you think it's possible for a single human being to wreak as much havoc on the world as Gavrilo Princep did? Like, just one person? I mean, maybe Jack Ruby? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. It's pretty, like... Uh, Gavrilo Princip, he he had a uh, uh, a a banner day, for lack of a better term. Gavrilo Princip, of course, being the guy that killed Archduke Ferdinand, which uh, di- directly indirectly started World War One. You know, he was he was the guy that that shoved somebody in the bar that like everyone was already like very much ready to fight. One thousand percent. But yeah, no, he was the guy who's like, yo, everyone, let's stop talking and let's do this. And in preparation for a war that everyone really felt was coming from like maybe 40 years away, uh, nations started stockpiling any and all weaponry that they thought could be advantageous for them during the war. And no one was really sure if airplanes would be useful. Um, There was sort of a lot of debate about it. There was legislation proposed for the international rules of war in 1911 to ban all weapons being put on planes that they thought that like, oh, you got like weapons on planes, they're just going to be attacking defenseless cities. Um, didn't work out, but uh, that, that didn't get passed, obviously. But, uh, a lot of military leaders saw them more of a novelty of just like, eh, you, we might as well have these. Sort of like what uh, the uh, Union Army Balloonist Corps was in, during the Civil War. They're like, eh, we might as well. You know, this might be the thing that turns the war. Give it a shot. Uh, so, like at the war, war's onset, France had a fleet of 140 planes. Like Germany had 200. The U.S. and Britain had even less than that. 
And by the war's end, France alone had produced 68,000 planes, 52,000 of which would be destroyed in battle. So, you know, not, not great odds if you're a pilot. Uh, the planes that they had were a good bit improved over the Wright brothers, um, at, at least at first, even in 1914. Uh, they could generally go around 70 miles per hour for about two to three hours at a time. And they had some pretty great names. That uh, We got the Albatross B-2, the, the British Bristol Scout, the American Abinoist 14, and, and my favorite was the Farman Shorthorn. Yeah, it's objectively the best one. Mm-hmm. Very much the best one. Uh, there's another one. Uh, the the Sopwith Camel was a later one in the war by the British, which I think that one competes with the Farman Shorthorn. Yeah, I was going to say, we got a contender. <laughs> Contenders uh, enter the ring. And then the, the, the Germans, they had one that was called the Fokker. Just the Fokker? The Fokker Scourge. Well, it was called the Fokker Scourge by the, the Allies. Was, uh, that was the first one where they had like a machine gun that could shoot through the propeller. The best kind of nicknames like for for striking fear in the hearts are ones that other people give you and they stick. Like I think that's that's the golden rule. Mm-hmm. Scourge is a pretty good one. Yeah, that's good. It's tough. And all these were they were open air. They were mostly single seater, and they'd switch to this tractor design with a propeller in the front that was pulling the the aircraft forward. Whereas a lot of the the, the earliest ones with the Wright brothers plane. Those were push designs, so the propellers were in the back, pushing them forward, sort of like an airboat. Um, and th- this was a, a change because you could like go a lot faster and maneuver a lot better if you had the, the tractor design with the propeller in the front, but you couldn't see as well, and it was harder to shoot. The strategy of, of how planes were used in the war evolved uh, mm, sort of naturally. That the, the first strategy was they were used is for reconnaissance. Like scouting up to this point in warfare for... I guess the last like 5,000 years was done by people on horseback. And planes, they could go uh, a lot farther and they could see a lot more stuff. And they could also have you know, mounted cameras that they could take pictures of things that they were looking at as well. And sort of like you know, the Union Army Balloonist Corps, they, they were primarily used for uh, reconnaissance as well. Oh, no bombing missions from the Union Army Balloonist Corps? They did drop bombs like occasionally, but it was mostly for looking, what I found. They, they were just mostly looky-loos. No early stage paratroopers either? Not, uh, not from the balloonists. That been, I feel like that, that might have been a bridge too far. <laughs> the, the early recon pilots, though, uh, it was kind of a like, you know, Benny Goodman, like comedy of errors being an early <laughs> recon pilot. Because they they were trying to like navigate like while flying while taking pictures and they didn't have like good maps and they didn't have any you know, GPS or anything like that as this was like nineteen fourteen or fifteen so they would just have road maps and they would get lost like very very frequently it was fairly common for a, a, a recon pilot to just land in a field and get out and ask for directions like on a farm <laughs> and like I'm trying to go this way do you know where this is or like they would. Uh, they would fly next to railroad tracks and in the hopes that they would fly by a train station and they would be able to look and read the name of the train station. This is like all very Randy Quaid and Independence Day of them. Very, very much. Uh, Wrong field. They would frequently get shot at when they were there because they, they couldn't fly very fast. Like the, these planes could fly at maybe like 60 or 70 miles per hour. And they were flying over enemy encampments that would just see this plane going by and they go like, oh, 
we should probably shoot at that person because he's going to tell the the other people where we are and then they're going to bombard us. So like at first weaponry was an afterthought. Like the, the the first engagements you would have would be like occasionally two enemy scouting planes. They would like see each other like as they were flying past and they would just like pull out a pistol and start shooting at each other from the open cockpit. That was the first like <laughs> dog fights. Just like drive-by plane shootings? <laughs> yes, yeah, open air drive-by plane shootings. And like then they started taking grenades with them, so they would throw grenades at at each other from these open air cockpits. Better blast radius, I respect that. Mm-hmm. But they would, but they couldn't throw them very far. They would have to like be over top of them and then like drop them out the side. Because that's a timing mechanism thing, not a contact, right? Mm-hmm. So there's not just like falling grenades all over the place if you're if you're underneath a battle. I mean, I think they're there. Like this wasn't necessarily during a battle. Even they would just be there, like uh, trying to go behind enemy lines when things weren't all that active, and they would just spot each other. You know, I like suppose I'm in dogfight. Yeah, I mean, that's what it's like. You have two neighborhood dogs that like spot each other from across the street and just start like barking and like biting at each other. And, you know, this eventually evolved into having mounted machine guns on planes and then having like dedicated fighter planes specifically to take down reconnaissance planes. And then there were other fighter planes to fight the other fighter planes that would like try to protect the reconnaissance planes. And it was just sort of an arms race from there. So they went through a lot of planes and pilots. As I mentioned, that the the French uh, army made fifty or made sixty eight thousand planes during World War One, and fifty two thousand of them were destroyed. So it's like seventy five percent of all of their planes got blown up or crashed. And uh, the average life expectancy of a British pilot in nineteen seventeen was around sixty nine flying hours, which you know, nice, but also not very nice which was still a better than amount of training that they received, which was an average of about three and a half hours of in-flight experience of like actually flying an airplane before they were sent on missions. Not trying to be glib whatsoever, but uh, learning that they only had three and a half hours of training, 69 hours now seems a little high. Yeah. For the average expectancy. They did pretty good. I guess they picked it up as they went along. Yeah, I I also have to imagine that the training numbers contributed to the like loss of 52,000 planes or however many they ended up losing. But the the ones that were able to make it out of those three and a half hours is like these were mostly one seater planes. So it was a thing of like, okay, like there's no one there to teach you. There's no like flight instructor with the, the like third pedal there to put the brakes on for you. Just like a big follow me energy when you're learning how to do those things. <laughs> But uh, all of this dogfighting begat the the flying aces, that uh, like romantic idea of the like dashing gentleman pilots of World War One. The most famous of which was Manfred von Richthofen. Excuse me, von Richthofen, who was uh, known as the Red Baron. Not just for the pizza, he was uh, a flying ace with eighty confirmed victories uh, or planes shot down. Is that where the pizza comes from? Yeah. I assumed it was a pirate thing. No, it was named after Red Baron, the the pilot, not the pirate. I mean, I to be honest, I don't know if there is a pirate. I should. Pirates are one of my things. This is fascinating to me. Okay. But a German pilot, not an Italian one. German pilot. Yeah. It's an interesting branding move. Von Richthofen. Is the Red Baron Pizza Company a German company? I did not do that research. I feel like this is something you should just know. It should be. It's in my wheelhouse. 
It's a little disappointing, to be honest. I'm a little disappointed we'll as well. Yeah, we'll, we'll have an update in the, the next episode. But uh, other aces included Eddie Rickenbacker, who was American, and uh, Ernst Udet, German, Mick Manick, uh, British, and Rene Fonk, who was French. Rene Fonk is a good name. Mm-hmm. Rene Fonk was, a, yeah, he had 75 confirmed victories, which, Potentially many more, because like, at reading up on this, like a lot of different uh, countries had different rules for how to confirm an air victory. Whereas apparently the French, like you had to have three uh, independent observers witness the uh, the plane get shot down that were not in your squadron. Ah, uh, the Guinness Book of World Records standard. Pretty much, pretty much. So like Rene Fonk apparently like. Might have had like 150 and might have just been like doubly as good as the Red Baron, but just uh, he was hamstrung by the rules. So uh, just for, for those wondering, the millions at home, uh, Red Baron is owned by the Schwann Food Company, which is headquartered in Marshall, Minnesota, mm. which means that an American company chose a German pilot to mascot their Italian food brand. Isn't Tucker Carlson the, the Schwann's heir? So what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> is he? yeah. That that's where he has the. Uh, that's his familial wealth is is from the Schwann's like frozen food brands. That is suspicious. They have a German pilot as their. Uh... It's not suspicious at all. <laughs> uh... Different war, different war. But flying an air fighting theory developed out of this as well because this is a thing of like, you know, just think about in 1903 was when the first like powered flight happened 1909 was when the first uh um like aircraft was sold to a military and by 1914 you have like thousands and thousands of people being trained to fly planes just like the the like up curve here of the number of people doing it and just like is ridiculous and that you have all these people becoming like famous and artists like almost for doing this and like constructing Uh, entire treatises on how to fly airplanes just so, so quickly. We live in a fast-paced world. Sometimes, you just need to slow down and stop. Heddles Plus, the new membership program of exclusive content, giveaways, discounts, and a community chat forum. Try a month free with the code EXTRABLOWOUT. Wait, someone killed the Red Baron? I thought he made it out. It came up in the in the the pizza research. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we gotta edit that part back because, like, I saw that he made it out and that he like wrote a book. It just said 1918, and I was like, "It's a tough timeline to write a book in." German ace Oswald Bolke had a series of rules called the Dicta Bolke that were taught to German <clears throat> pilots. It's it's eight points. You you ready for them? Yeah, and I also will never not laugh at Dick the Bokeh. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's a flaw, but it's... Rule one of the Dick the Bokeh. <clears throat> Try to secure advantages before attacking. If possible, keep the sun behind you. That tracks. Rule two. Always carry through an attack when you have started it. Rule three. Fire only at close range and only when your opponent is properly in your sights. Four. Always keep your eye on your opponent and never let yourself be deceived by ruses. <clears throat> you know, that's just a good rule for life. Yeah, really? It's a, it's a cunning attempt to trick me. 
Mm-mm. Number five. In any form of an attack, it is essential to assail your enemy from behind. You know, kind of a cheap shot, but okay, dicta. Uh, number six. If your opponent dives on you, do not try to evade his onslaught, but fly to meet it. This is that chest puffing shit. Number seven, when over the enemy's lines, never forget your own line of retreat. And number eight, which just seems like the most applicable one, is attack on principle in groups of four or six. When the fight breaks up into a series of single combats, take care that several do not go for the same opponent. I feel like you should lead with that one. Yeah, that that one seems the most uh, applicable. The rest is basically just like, you know, stay strapped with sunglasses and uh, try to keep them in sight when you shoot at them. Yeah, and hit them from the back when they least expect it. So we talked about all the various planes and pilots and tactics and Dick DeBolke of World War One, but <laughs> Reed, what were they wearing? Flight jackets. Kind of. It was a good guess. Yeah, it, it was a good guess. Uh, as we mentioned, you know, almost all of these planes were open cockpit and they weren't flying all that high up, but by the end of the war, planes were able to fly speeds nearly of 150 miles per hour. Which, you know, doing that uh, open air in Europe in the wintertime could get pretty chilly. And the first flight jackets were basically like these big leather trench coats, some of which were fur-lined. That I, I got some pictures here. The British Royal Flying Corps, the RFC uh, aviation jacket, had this like angled square patch pocket and a belt around the middle and like this row of buttons off to, uh, to the side of the right lapel. Yeah, that's like it'd be like triple breasted if they had if we were counting the breastings. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like so a, far a, a capital ring coat. If <laughs> it just yeah. went all the way over and then it went yeah. down to like your ankles. Or I feel like Chamala did one that was like probably honestly modeled off of this coat. Mm-hmm. Where yeah, like it basically like the button starts at like the crux of your shoulder, like where your shoulder joint is, not like the ball of it on the mm-hmm. inside. Yeah, like but it's like a great coat where just like buttons like up here at the edge of your your shoulder and this this big jacket was complemented by what were called fug boots fug boots just one g which were these like hip high sheepskin waiter booties looking things to keep people's legs from freezing which uh kind of look like a visvim like inuit collection kind of thing they also kind of look like thigh highs for babies also true they definitely do look like it looked like something that like Hiroki was really feeling himself and then made it and was like, yikes, I might have to put like an $8,900 price tag on these and just make them a museum piece. Mm-hmm. They, they look really warm and they look kind of cool. I don't know, it, it, especially just seeing them stand up like turkey legs, like without, you know, the, the way the museum photos are taken. They also had sheepskin hats and goggles, which, you know, for obvious reasons. The goggles and hat are probably my favorite part. Yeah, those look pretty cool. Even more capital-looking than the British Royal Flying Corps was the British Royal Naval Air Service jacket, which had a lot of like more angles on it and uh, a lot more curvature and just sort of like, I don't know, it looks kind of sinister in a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's like what Doctor Doom or whatever that guy, the, the, the one from the bad Fantastic Fours would be wearing. Yeah, and they're kind of like patchwork, too. 
that it, it looks kind of like a the Mordor, like an like an orc flying coat in a way. And this one was was lined with uh, with felt and had these like matching gloves. Are those? Oh, I thought that was actually part of the jacket. So those are matching gloves. I like that, mm-hmm. like slanted, rounded patch pocket that covers the entire left side of the torso, though. Yeah, that thing is kind of sick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is, I believe, where they kept their guns. You know, when they would fly by somebody, that's where they had their pistols, so they could reach in and, you know. Shoot I guess off that next makes sense. I feel like there's some accident potential because it's a pretty roomy pocket. Mm-hmm. But like, just just for modern application, you could fit anything in there. Yeah, you could fit your, uh, you know, iPhone Plus in there. Yeah, if you're like one of those people that's still rocking a tablet in public, <laughs> um, <laughs> you could fit. It's tablet sized. And uh, the German aviation uniform, as one might expect, is sort of more like Teutonic and severe and like almost comical looking that it's got this like double breasted leather jacket. Uh, and it has these like poofy old timey looking like film director uh, pants that are also made out of leather. The pants look like uh, the very capital. They like they like the job pairs they did. Mm-hmm. Orslo did a pair like this, too, at one point. Which I don't know the like tactical advantage of having Jodhpuri like poofy pants, but uh, it does make a very striking silhouette in a way that the uh, the the British and the uh, uniforms do not ne- look nearly as well tailored. This is on that lemony snicket. Well, just wait until you see these big like honking fireman like deep sea diver boots that they had. Those do not look nearly as cool as the fug boots. I gotta say. SpongeBob SquarePants had the uh, real life treatment. Mm-hmm. Those are tough. They look like boots that like Big Bird would wear. <laughs> People who put those on would like just immediately go two palms to the sky and be like, "Are you serious?" Mm-hmm. Like they just the toes are so round. They make they almost look like hooves. Mm-hmm. Which maybe that was the point. I don't know what the point of these things were. Like you put those on and you're not getting away from anything. But they, they do look kind of warm because they just have like this overflowing like uh, uh, fur lining that's coming out of the top that looks like they go up to like knee level. But yeah, you think the Red Baron's really cool. Just imagine him wearing these. They also kind of look like at least like from the ankle up, like what LeBron would put the bottom half of his legs in. But like <laughs> they get really cold. To to rehab, there's just nothing about these that says I should be worn while doing something. But these were enough to keep people alive for at least 69 hours in the harsh conditions of the first air warfare. But it would be far from the last air battle the world would see. We got uh, American General Billy Mitchell would say of World War One. The day has passed when armies on the ground or navies in the sea can be the arbiter of a nation's destiny in war. The main power of defense and the initiative against an enemy has passed to the air. Which we will follow along in our next episode. Thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, please consider joining Heddles Plus. Which, Reed, you know Heddles Plus. You love Heddles Plus. Love Heddles Plus. Discord's popping. You get discounts all over the web. You get more episodes like this one. You get exclusive giveaways twice a month. And you can send us pictures of your pants. 
Some of you send us some amazing pictures of pants. I'm really happy to see them. The discounts are really great. Like there's stores that we all know and love. There, it, it's some really good stuff in yeah. there. Like Clutch Cafe, Tellison, Stag, Blue and Green, um, Pedal Shop, Knickerbocker, Lowercase. We got a bunch of them in there. And it is just five bucks to get started and you get a free month with the code Extra blowout at heddles.plus in your browser. Just go to heddles.plus. Any questions, comments, concerns? Read, what is our email? Blowout at heddles.com. Oh, thanks so much for joining us. Bye bye.